this is a re-record of last night's message, which had technical difficulties. So we're not before a live audience now, but it was suggested that the truth of that message would be helpful to hear it uh, in, in this form here. And so what we'll do, we're going to be looking at part of Isaiah 52, as well as chapter 53. The subject uh, that we're looking at is gleanings from the book of Isaiah. And as we've already learned in uh, 1 Peter 1.11, that the Spirit of Christ, it testified beforehand of the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. In this particular section, it is the sufferings of Christ. Yes, there is glory that will follow. There's a kingdom age coming. But many have been blinded to how could this same person be ruling in power, yet suffer, and the sufferings would happen first. And now there's been at least 2,000 year gap between the two comings of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yet the prophets spoke of the sufferings of Messiah. And so what's before us now is the sufferings of Messiah as given in Isaiah 52, 13 through Isaiah 53 and verse 12. Now, there are 15 verses before us in this section, uh, 3 in chapter 52 and 12 in chapter 53. And, and those 15 verses actually break down into five stanzas of three verses each. Five stanzas of three verses each. Uh, verses 13 through 15 of chapter 52, stanza number 1. 1 through 3 of 53, stanza 2. 4 through 6 of 53, stanza 3. 7 through 9 of 53, stanza 4, and 10 through 12 of 53, stanza number 5. The subject before us here is the sufferings of Christ. You look at verse 13 of chapter 52 for a minute. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. That will happen. But it goes on to say in verse 14, as many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. And that takes us to the cross and his sufferings. And we have the sufferings of the Lord Jesus before here, the sufferings that would come first, where it's not political salvation here, God judging the ungodly nations for their sins against his people so that Israel can have freedom. But my judgment, my judgment, my sins require judgment. Romans 1.32, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death. And we will see in this section that the judgment of God did not fall on the nations, but fell on his beloved son, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, for our sins. And so we have the sufferings of Messiah before us. Now, there's different ways we can look at this section, verse by verse, different thoughts of the sufferings of Christ. But, but the way that's on my heart is to take these five stanzas of three verses each and look at them through the lens of the five Jewish offerings in the Levitical system back in the book of, in the book of, just slipped my mind here, Leviticus, in the book of Leviticus. And to look at those five offerings as they will depict the Lord Jesus Christ in his one offering. And you will see the aspect of those offerings also here. In Isaiah 52 and 53, God's revealing the depths and the sufferings of the Lord Jesus. So, so let's approach it that way. We'll be flipping back between Isaiah 52 and 53 and Leviticus. So if, if you're listening along and want to keep something in Isaiah 53 
And then move with me, please, to Leviticus chapter 7. Uh, Leviticus chapter 7. We're going to go down to verse 37, Leviticus 7 and verse 37. 737. This is the law of the burnt offering, of the meat offering, and of the sin offering, and of the trespass offering, and of the consecrations, and of the sacrifice of the peace offerings. There are five offerings given a name here in verse 37. There's the burnt offering that we'll talk about in a minute. The meat offering, and the, the meat is a King James word, a generic word for meat simply means food. It doesn't have to be red meat, it can be food, and in this case it'll turn out to be more technically a meal offering of fine flour, a grain offering. Uh, thirdly mentioned here is the uh, sin offering, then the trespass offering, and in verse 37, the peace offering. Now, it would take a, a fair amount of time just to look at these offerings and all that they mean and point to the Lord Jesus Christ. But, but having said that, all we want to do in this uh, particular session is look at the five offerings. While they each had something similar, they would share similarities, they, you know, without blemish if it was an animal, went to the altar, etc. But each offering would own an identity, something unique, not shared by the other offerings. And the other offering will have something not true of the other four offerings. I simply want to draw our attention to the uniqueness, the differences of each of these offerings and show how they point to the depths of the one offering of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. We learn in Hebrews 10, 12, speaking of the Lord Jesus, but this man, after he'd offered one sacrifice for sin forever, sat down on the right hand of God. He offered one sacrifice. It's only one in his case. Hebrews 10, 14. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. But God will take five models, five pictures here, five Jewish offerings to help us understand the depths, the beauty of the one offering of our Lord Jesus. God will use five models. Uh, something like a woman with a diamond. Uh, she gets it in the sunlight and the different facets begin to glisten, and you see the depths and color to that diamond. Well, the sacrifice of Christ has different depths and beauties and grace to it, and so God will give us five offerings with differences to understand the one offering of His Son, the Lord Jesus. And as we briefly consider these five offerings, their distinction, uh, you will see how they will share in similarity with the five stanzas of the suffering Messiah in Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12. So let's go to Leviticus chapter 1 and briefly consider the first offering brought before us in Leviticus chapter 1, and it will be the burnt offering. Now you look at verse 3, Leviticus 1 and verse 3. If his offering be a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. He shall offer it of his own voluntary will at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord. So the first offering God talks about is called the burnt offering. The reason it was called the burnt offering is because it was all to be burnt. Uh, look at, for example, look at verse 9 of Leviticus 1. That's the only offering that this would happen to. The only one of the five that this would happen to. Verse 9 of Leviticus 1. But his inwards and his legs shall he wash in water, and the priest shall burn all on the altar to be a burnt sacrifice. An offering made by fire 
of a sweet savor or aroma unto the Lord. Once it was skinned, and the Bible will teach later in Leviticus that priests could keep the skin of the burnt offering. Once it was skinned, the whole carcass, everything, was put on that altar, and the fire of God consumed it on that altar, and it was all of it was burnt unto the Lord. It wasn't for man. It wasn't to be eaten by the priest or even the offerer like some of the other ones. It was all for God. Once it was skinned, the whole thing was for God, and it was a sweet aroma unto God. So we have an offering here that's completely for God, and that is the burnt offering. Now, language like that immediately takes us to the revelation of the New Testament, where, where Ephesians 5, 2 will put it this way, Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling Savior. You know, when it comes to our Lord Jesus Christ, there's an aspect of his sacrifice that was for God alone. While it was for us, his sacrifice was never unto us. He offered himself for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God, Ephesians 5, 2 says. It was to satisfy God's holy claim against our sin. And so the sacrifice of Christ was an offering to God. It was Christ's dedication to God. You know, he could say in John 14, 31, on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane, he could say that the world may know that I love the Father. Arise, let us go hence. They would know he loves the Father. The act of the cross was an act of obedience because God asked him. He became obedient unto death even the death of the cross, Philippians 2.8. Humanly speaking, our Lord Jesus did not want to taste that suffering. In the garden, he said, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But then he added, not my will, but thine be done. And so it was an act of obedience, of dedication, of love to God, that God asked him to do it. And so we see an aspect of the Lord Jesus that in his whole life, even through his death, I do always those things that please him, he could say in John 8, 29. The heart of the Lord Jesus sold out to do the will of his Father whom he loved, answering to the burnt offering that was all for God as a sweet savor. Which takes us back to our section in Isaiah, as we flip back for now, to Isaiah 52 and verse 13. And 13 through 15, what we're calling stanza number one, notice how verse 13 starts. Behold, my servant. And then verse 14, many were astonished at thee. His visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. That's his sufferings. He's my servant. He's not your servant or, or our personal servant. He is God's servant. He took upon him the form of a servant, says Philippians 2 and verse 7. He does God's will, as we've been hearing. He's like the burnt offering. It is for God. And so we see that the sufferings of Christ, the, the, the sprinkling of the nations, was something he did as obedience to God. He is my servant. So Isaiah 52, verses 13 through 15, answer to the burnt offering. We reminded ourselves earlier that in Isaiah 42, 1, we have that technical phrase again for the only other time in Isaiah, behold my servant. And there it was, behold my servant in Isaiah 42, the character of his ministry. A bruised reed will he not break, you know, smoking flax he won't quench. 
he won't, he's not a rebel lifting up his voice in protest to overthrow things. Uh, the character of his ministry, behold my servant. But here in Isaiah 52, 13, behold my servant. It's not the character of his ministry per se. It is the cross, the sufferings of the cross, that he would become obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And he did it as the servant of God unto God for a sweet-smelling savor. No wonder after many years of living on earth, God would open up the heavens and say of the Lord Jesus in Matthew 17, 5, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. Having said that, let, let, let's move to our second offering, first of all, before we compare it to the second stanza in Isaiah, the Isaiah section, and go to Leviticus chapter 2, please. Leviticus chapter 2. And here we have the meat, or more technically the meal or the grain offering. You look at verse 1 of Leviticus 2, verse 1. And when any will offer a meat offering unto the Lord, his offering shall be a fine flour, and he shall pour oil upon it and put frankincense thereon. Now, what will be unique about the meal offering? It's not made with meat, red meat. It is bloodless. It's the only one of the five offerings that doesn't have blood because it's fine flour, that smooth, consistent, fine flour. And it has a fragrance to it because frankincense was to put thereon. Now, in the meal offering, it will go into minute detail of the preparation of the meal offering. Only a memorial of it will go to the burnt altar to be burnt. Only a unlike the burnt offering, the whole thing was burnt, not the meal offering. For example, look at verse 9, Leviticus 2, verse 9. And the priest shall take from the meat offering, or meal offering, a memorial thereof, and he shall burn it upon the altar. It is an offering made by fire of a sweet savor unto the Lord. More details will be given here in its preparation of the meal offering than the offering itself. There's several verses. You couldn't have leaven in it or yeast, no honey in it. Uh, frankincense it had to be put on it. It would be a memorial. And, and then some of the options were in verse 4 here of Leviticus chapter 2. Verse 4, if thou shalt bring an oblation of a meal offering, bake it in the oven, it shall be unleavened cakes of fine flour, etc. Verse 5, if thy oblation be a meal offering or meat offering, bake it in a pan. And so there's detail of the preparation of the meal offering. It would be the only offering that would pass through heat before it ever came to the fire of the altar. Bake it in an oven or in a pan or a frying pan, verse 7. And here this offering, because it has no blood, speaks of the life of the Lord Jesus dedicated to God. The life of the Lord Jesus and the preparation of the Lord Jesus. Before he ever went to Calvary, uh, he had to, so to speak, pass the test of temptation, as uh, Hebrews 4.15 says, who was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin, proving he was the Son of God. So, so the, the emphasis here is in the preparation of, of the uh, meal offering. Uh, see, for it to be perfect in its sacrifice, in its presentation, in its acceptation, it had to be perfect in its presentation. It'll be no good to, to put it on the altar if it's imperfect. So it had to pass through various forms of heat, no leaven in it, fine flour. And so the emphasis on the preparation of what a portion of will go to the altar. 
For example, you go out for a steak dinner and um, you order yours medium well. I only say that because that's how I like it. And it's been 20, 30 minutes since your steak is, hasn't come. You stand up, you walk over to the grill to see what's happened, and there your piece of steak has fallen on the ground. And Fido, the restaurant dog, is hovering over it. Oh my. And you run back to your table, you see the waiter coming, and he picks up the steak, puts it on a pewter plate, a bit of parsley, and hands you the steak, bon appetit. Will you, in that presentation, will you accept that steak? You say, I'll never accept it. It was contaminated in its preparation. It is not acceptable in its presentation. You see, the meal offering will point you to the sinless life of our Lord Jesus. His moral life saves nobody. It can't take away any sin. Without shedding of blood, there's no remission, as uh, teaches Hebrews 9.22. But for that sacrifice to be acceptable to God, it had to be perfect. Like the Old Testament sacrifices, it shall be perfect to be accepted, Leviticus 22.21. And so the Lord was tempted by Satan. He walked among the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they hardened their heart, and he was grieved at times with them. Yet in all that, in all that, he never veered from the Father's will, proved himself to be apart from sin, tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. As the epistle writers will say by the Spirit of God, Peter, in 1 Peter 1.22, who did no sin. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.21, who knew no sin. John in 1 John 3, 5, in him was no sin. And that was only proved through the life that he lived. So the meal offering points to the preparation of Christ becoming our sacrifice, his holy life that qualified him to be a sacrifice that God would accept. Another aspect of our Lord Jesus. Having said that, looking at the unique distinction of the meal offering, going back to Isaiah, this time 53, Looking briefly at the second stanza, verses 1 through 3, it will be the one stanza in these five that do not take you to the sufferings of the cross. Look at verse 1. Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness at his attractiveness. When we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Did you notice this second stanza here in the Isaiah section speaks of him growing up? Not a sacrifice. He will grow up before him as a tender plant, a root out of a dry ground, in a barren world that brings no fruit for God. Here's a tender plant delighting the heart of God in the Lord Jesus. Yet by man he was despised and rejected. They tried to push him off the cliff. They called him a wine-bibber and a glutton and so on. He was a man of sorrows. This is not the sufferings God laid on him. That's verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. This is the rejection of men. This is Christ going through the fires, the heat of life, and yet still doing the Father's will, even to the cross. Being faithful to the call of God because he loved the Father, even going through the fires of life, proving he was the Son of God without sin. And so it brings before us the life of the Lord Jesus and the pressures of life in his rejection by men, just like the meal offering went into the oven before it ever went to the altar of the burnt offering, the altar of fire, and so on. Having said that, we want to go to our third offering briefly back into Leviticus, 
this time chapter 3, Leviticus chapter 3, and by name it's called the peace offering. Reading uh, from verse 1 of Leviticus chapter 3, verse 1, and if his oblation be a sacrifice of peace offering, if he offer it of the herd, whether it be a male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. This was another one of those offerings that was voluntarily, voluntary. You didn't have to bring it. It wasn't for a specific sin that you had to specifically confess. It more had to do with you making a vow to God or just being thankful for how God answered the vow or worked in your life associated with the sacrifice of thanksgiving in Leviticus 22, 29. It's just your appreciation of your God. And so you had to bring an offering, of course. And and so you brought an offering here called the peace offering. Now the uniqueness about the peace offering is not because you were in trouble with God. It's because you you loved the Lord. You, You had an appreciation of the Lord. You were in fellowship with the Lord. And the unique thing about the peace offering is that it's the one offering, the offerer, not just the priest, The offerer, you who brought it to the priest, were allowed to eat part of it. More instructions of the law of the peace offering is given in chapter 7. Chapter 7 of Leviticus, if you look at that for a minute. Leviticus chapter 7 and verse 11, 7 11. And this is the law of the sacrifice of peace offerings, which ye shall offer unto the Lord. So here's the law, here's the instructions. Look at them briefly, you look at uh, verse 14. And of it he shall offer one out of the whole oblation for a heave offering unto the Lord, and it shall be the priest that sprinkleth the blood of the peace offerings. So part of the peace offering the priest got. But look at verse 15. And the flesh of the sacrifice of the peace offerings for thanksgiving shall be eaten the same day that it is offered. He shall not leave any of it until the morning. But if the sacrifice of his offering be a vow or a voluntary offering, it shall be eaten the same day that he offereth his sacrifice. And on the morrow also the remainder of it shall be eaten. Unlike the burnt offering, which was uh, completely burnt, uh, the meal offering, which the priest could eat part of it, you the offerer, once God had a certain parts of it on the altar, like the fat and other pieces that were burnt before the Lord, God would have his part put on the altar as a sweet savor, but part of that you could eat. And what this would show, when you sit at somebody's table and eat with them, you're in harmony with that person. It's fellowship. We invite people over for dinner. We're having fellowship with them. We're at peace with them. God and man eating at the same table. Uh, Man thanking God, not in trouble with God here, but man receiving back the fellowship of, of this peace offering. You know, when it comes to the Lord Jesus, why he has brought us peace in his sacrifice, hasn't he? Romans 5.1, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, saved from the wrath of God. And I can come into his presence now with a sacrifice of thanksgiving, teaches Hebrews 13 and verse 15, not fearing the wrath of God, but have fellowship with him. As it teaches the church concerning the Lord's table in 1 Corinthians 10, 16, the cup which we bless, is it not the communion, or the Greek word is translated elsewhere, the fellowship of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion or fellowship of the body of Christ? 
so that we are showing fellowship. What God delights in is not who's going to win the World Series or anything like that. He delights in what His Son has done. And we feed on that and take that in and give our thanksgiving to God. We're not coming to the Lord's Supper to get our sins forgiven. We simply, as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, goes on to teach in the Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. We do show forth the Lord's death till He come. Showing it forth, pouring out our thanksgiving uh, in fellowship with God, having made peace by the blood of His cross. Having said that, how the peace offering points to an aspect of the accomplishments of the sacrifice of Christ. Going back to Isaiah 53, now arriving at our third stanza in verses 4 through 6, it'll be the only stanza that has the word peace in it and will show something you receive from this sacrifice. Uh, look at verse 4, Isaiah 53. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement or punishment of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. The only one to use our peace, the chastisement of our peace. We receive peace out of this, and it's our peace. We have peace with God, as we said, through our Lord Jesus Christ. To experience the peace of God and to know Him, not under His wrath anymore, not under His judgment, can have a relationship with God. We have peace with God through the sacrifice of Christ. Just like they would eat part of it and be in fellowship with God, we are in fellowship with Him. And the Lord Jesus tells the church at Laodicea in Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice, and open the door. I will come into him and sup, dine, eat with him, and he with me. God's desire for fellowship fulfilled in the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus, the peace offering brought before us in Isaiah 53, 4 through 6. Having said that, we'd like to go to the fourth offering to look at its distinction, which is the sin offering. And the sin offering will take us to Leviticus chapter 4. Leviticus chapter 4, please. Not looking at all the aspects of the sin offering here, but the verse 2 of Leviticus 4. Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, If a soul shall sin through ignorance against any of the commandments of the Lord concerning things which ought not to be done, and shall do against any of them, if, and so on. And so it goes on to say, look at verse 3, If the priest that is anointed do sin according to the sin of the people, then let them bring for his sin which he has sinned a young bullock without blemish unto the Lord for a sin offering. A sin offering is mandatory. He's a holy God. You do not have an option in this one. Your thanksgiving is not legislated. Your, your, your appreciation of God is not legislated. But when you sin, there has to be the covering, the forgiveness of sin, because God is holy. And in this sin offering, it wasn't even sins that you knew that you did on purpose. It was sins of ignorance. Ignorance is no excuse. You might have not been familiar with Scripture and did something, and the priest pointed it out to you. And so the sin offering is not sins of arrogance, but sins of ignorance, and they had to be covered too. Now, the unique thing about the sin offering, uh, yes, it was without blemish, and yes, part of it was burnt on the altar again, but not all of it. But the unique thing about the sin offering, if you look here in Leviticus 4 and uh, verse 11, verse 11, 
and the skin of the bullock and all his flesh with his head, with his legs, and his inwards, and his dung, even the whole bullock shall he carry forth without the camp unto a clean place where the ashes are poured out, and burn him on the wood with fire where the ashes are poured out, shall he be burnt. This sin offering was not wholly burnt upon the altar of burnt offering like the burnt offering. Just a few pieces were. But then the rest of the carcass, head, legs, and everything else, you carried that carcass. It was carried outside the camp, outside the uh, sanctuary of God, the tabernacle or temple of God, and Israel that camped around it. And outside of the presence of God, in a clean place, is where that animal would be burnt. It's the movement of the sin offering. While part of it did go to the altar, the majority of it was carried outside and burnt there, not on the altar, burnt outside the camp. Why? It was a sin offering. You can't have sin in the midst of the Holy One of Israel. So even the offering itself, the majority of it was taken outside. A sin offering will not be in God's sight. It would be burnt outside the camp. That takes us to another aspect of our Lord Jesus and His sacrifice. Hebrews 13 will tell us about it, and it will use this very example, uh, referring to the Day of Atonement when the sin offering, the carcass, had to be carried outside the camp to be burnt. It couldn't be burnt where God dwelt. But it goes on to say, Hebrews 13, 12, Wherefore Jesus also, that He might sanctify the people with His own blood, suffered without the gate. Where our Lord Jesus died is important too. He was a perceived criminal. They rejected him. They did not put a crown of gold on his head. As a criminal, they drug him outside the city walls, outside the temple precinct. And there they crucified him outside on a hill called Calvary. He suffered outside the camp, outside the gate. For he was the sin offering. And God himself had to forsake him during those hours of burying our sin. He would cry, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? As 1 Peter 2.24 says, he, who his own self bare our sin in his own body on the tree. And as he was buried our sin on the tree, it was outside the gate of Jerusalem, outside the city of God where his name was. For it, he was a sin offering, and God himself in that sense could not look upon his son. The movement of the sin offering outside the camp pointing to the rejection of the Lord Jesus and becoming the sin offering for us and suffering the rejection of that. But now back to Isaiah 53 and our fourth stanza in this section, which will be verses 7 through 9. And it, it, it is the one section that will show the progression, the movement of the body of the Lord Jesus. You look at verse 7. It will answer to the sin offering. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He is brought. There's more movement in verse 8. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off, that's the cross, out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. From prison to the cross, uh, judged as a criminal, and then the, the movement of the body. But look further in verse 9. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. And so his body was buried. That's our gospel. Removed out of God's sight. Not just died, but, but, but buried. Made his grave with the wicked. 
as dead people are buried. Wicked sinners are buried, obviously. But yet it was an honorable burial, just like the ashes were burnt, or the carcass was burnt in a clean place because they had done no violence. It was a rich man's tomb. And so it's this section that shows the movement of the body of cut off and buried with the wicked. As our sin offering, burying our transgressions, our sin, he, he has dealt with in rejection and cut off and buried uh, to, to accomplish our salvation. He answers to the sin offering here uh, in the suffering verses of Isaiah. But that leaves us one more offering to consider in the five major Jewish offerings. If you'll go back, please, to Leviticus chapter 6. Leviticus chapter 6. Some of the, the sixth, fifth one, I should say, is the trespass offering. Some will translate it the guilt offering. Some of it is discussed at the end of chapter 5. We're not looking at that part of against the Lord directly, but we're in chapter 6 and verse 1. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Leviticus 6.1, verse 2, If a soul sin and commit a trespass against the Lord and lie unto his neighbor, and that which was delivered him to keep or in fellowship or in a thing taken away by violence or has deceived his neighbor. Now in this section, there were some ignorant sins included in chapter 5, but in this section it's not sins of ignorance, it's sins of arrogance. Uh, that's why it's called a guilt offering or a trespass offering like a line that says no trespassing, but you step over it anyway. You knew what you were doing, and so you're guilty. Now, your neighbor, you lied concerning your neighbor or something, they went away and you saw their yellow Mustang convertible sitting out there without permission, you took it for a ride and crashed it. They come back and say, what's happened to my Mustang? You say, oh, there was a lightning storm and a tree fell on it and crushed it. Well, you just lied. And there has to be a trespass offering for that sin. Other things listed in verse 3. Or have found that which was lost, and lieth concerning it, and sweareth falsely. And any of these things that a man doeth, sinning therein. Then he it shall be, because he has sinned. Now, he, he has to bring an animal for a trespass offering. That's verse 6. And he shall bring his trespass offering unto the Lord, a ram without blemish, out of the flock, with thy estimation, for a trespass offering unto the priest. The unique thing about the trespass offering, because sin damages. It not only hurts God, it hurts the fellow man and damages your fellow man like adultery breaks the heart of a wife or something like that. It, it hurts humanity. There had to be a restoration, an estimation along with the offering. Whatever the damages were in this case in a monetary situation, as verse 4 says, let's go back to verse 4, then it shall be because that he hath sinned and is guilty that he shall restore that which he took violently away or the thing which he hath deceitfully gotten or that which was delivered him to keep or the lost thing which he had found. So there had to be restoration, not just a blood sacrifice. I'd have to get you, if it was me who took your Mustang and crashed it, I'd have to buy you a brand new yellow Mustang convertible. Full restitution for you have been damaged, you have been violated, you have been hurt. The trespass offering restores the damages, the only one that does. The blood sacrifice, but the, the estimation, the, the, the principle uh, had to be restored. Uh, but not only that, verse 5, or all that about which he has sworn falsely, he shall even restore it in the principle. But now look in verse 5. And shall add the fifth part more thereto, and give it unto him to whom it appertaineth in the day of his trespass offering. 
you not only brought an offering, you brought the principal, you restored the damages, and then you added 20%. You added a fifth. We call it in our court system today the pain and suffering. That not only are people recompensed for damages lost, but the pain and suffering, sometimes an extra amount is given. It's abused, I understand, at times, but it comes from this principle here. The damage done against a person. You see, if, for example, I, again, borrowed your Mustang without your permission and crashed it, and I said, oh, I see, I have to, uh, so you don't prosecute, I have to uh, restore it, and I write you out a $50,000 check. Say it was, a, it was loaded, equipped with every option out there. And I write you a $50,000 check, and I said, here's the principal, so you can go buy another Mustang. And somebody says to you, uh, are you happy it happened? I said, of course I'm not happy it happened. He crashed it. I had one to begin with. Now I got to go out and get another one, haggle with the salesman, get re-register, all that. I'm not happy it happened. But now I have to add, for damages, 20% or a fifth. I not only write you a $50,000 check, I write you an extra check for $10,000 and hand it to you. And now somebody says to you, are you happy it happened? Well, you know that all things work together for good <laughs> to them that love the Lord, Romans 8.28. You ended up better than you started in the trespass offering. The person violated ended up with more than they lost the uniqueness of the trespass offering. In the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus, he not only provided forgiveness of sins, Ephesians 1.7, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. He's not only saved us from judgment and future wrath, as wonderful as that is to be saved from hell in that, he has restored us to God. In the language of that messianic psalm in Psalm 69, verse 4, then I restored that which I took not away. He has brought saved humanity back to God. We are reconciled by the death of His Son, Romans 5.10. Not, not just forgiven and not going to hell. Cats don't go to hell either. That, that's not much of a level. But we are reconciled in a relationship, justified. We're His children. He has brought humanity from estrangement and dead in sins back to life and in a people, the children of God. He's restored us. What was the power of his sacrifice to so cleanse us that he could do that? He's restored us back to God as children of God. We receive him, we become the children of God. But I want to tell you, is that all he does? You see, the New Testament teaches that God gets far more out of saved humanity than he ever lost in Adam. This whole plan was before the foundation of the world. God ends up better off, so to speak. That he has now, in Adam, he had a person who was smart, intellect, could name the animals. There's no record he ever loved God. We show our love by obeying him. And when Eve handed him the fruit, there was no struggle recorded. Well, what will God think? He just instantly pleased his wife and took the fruit and ate. No indication of a love for God. For he didn't know forgiveness and grace. But those of us that have experienced the love of God in Christ in Calvary, why Romans 5, 5 says the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. He has a people that he calls Christ the firstborn among many brethren, Romans 8, 29, that were conformed to the image of his son, not just innocent people like Adam, but the image of his son. We know good and evil, yet by his grace we can choose the good and we can love him and, be, and we have the mind of Christ, 1 Corinthians 2.16. 
Christ in you, the hope of glory, Colossians 1.27. He has far more enslaved humanity than he ever lost in Adam. He has a people that are like his son, being conformed to the image of his son, someday bodily too, <laughs> so that Christ is only the firstborn among many brethren. Was it worth it to God? <laughs> that the heart of God to save us. That what's been restored to God is not only what he lost, he's got that fifth, that 20% more. He has people now in his image because of the trespass offering. Closing, if you'll go back to Isaiah, looking at that last stanza of the five, verses 10 through 12. This is the stanza. It won't mention peace like the third one did. It won't mention the movement of the body like the fourth one did. Not his growing up in life like the second one did. Not my servant as the first one did. But it will mention this in verse 10 of Isaiah 53. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him or crush him. He hath put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. I want to stop there. God made his soul, the Lord Jesus' soul, an offering for sin. See that word offering? It's the same exact Hebrew word that we've been reading in Leviticus, trespass offering, asham. Same exact word, translated trespass offering. So it could also read, when thou shalt make his soul a trespass offering for sin. He dealt with all our sin, just not sins of ignorance. And, and so he is our trespass offering. But it goes on to say in verse 10 here, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquity. Oh, he not only just forgave us, he has justified us. Justified by faith, we learn in Romans 3.28. Declared righteous. One thing to be forgiven, another thing to say, you're righteous. He has restored us to God. His sacrifice has brought us back. But he's even done more than that. Look at verse 12 of Isaiah 53. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great. God gives Christ a portion with the great, but and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he had poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors. And he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. He takes those victory spoils of the cross and he divides them with the strong. He gives them to you and I, as we've been saying. Christ in you, the hope of glory, Colossians 1.27. We can be conformed to the image of his son. We are being the Holy Ghost in us, the love of God, someday our body. He takes the victories of the cross and doesn't just keep them for himself. We're going to reign with him, Revelation 5.10. He's going to share them with us, the strong. Well, who are the strong? 2 Timothy 2.1, the strong in grace, strong in grace, strong in faith, Romans 4.20. Those who trust him on the basis of grace, the gospel, and he shares uh, so that we end up with far more. We not only get uh, forgiven, we get justified, and then we get the spoil divided with us. We shall reign on the earth, <laughs> Revelation 5.10. We end up better than we started because of the sacrifice of Christ. And so Isaiah takes you to the sufferings of Christ. And in five stanzas, they help us understand the five offerings of Israel, which all point to the one offering of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ also hath loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savory, Ephesians 5, 2. And just like ancient Israel was to bring their offerings, do we have something to bring God? 
It's Christ. All these offerings point to Christ. Not our favorite drama, our favorite music. Bring him something of his son, his sinless life, his dedication to God, his blood sacrifice that cleanses from sin, that has given us peace. Bring him something of his son. By him, Hebrews 13, 15 says, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks unto his name. God encourage you in the Lord Jesus Christ, what is dear to the heart of God, the sufferings of Christ. Later we will consider what happens next, the glory that shall follow that the prophets prophesied about. May God bless his word. I'm done. <laughs>